Welcome to the Scuffed Podcast. I'm Adam Bells in Minneapolis. With me is Greg Velasquez in Des Moines. We talk about U.S. men's soccer. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. This might be our last episode of the year. We don't know for sure, but since that may be the case, we're going to run down the year that was for the U.S. men's national team and talk about what went right, what went wrong, and sort of look ahead to 2020. Greg, are you ready? Ready as ever, Bells. All right. I feel like we talk, we've talked about a lot of this stuff already, so we're not going to make this a long episode. We're just going to sort of quickly move through it because we, I don't know, I sort of feel like a broken record. I think you sort of feel like a broken record. Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of it stems from the fact that uh, yeah, a, it felt like a lot of a lot of these sort of windows for the U.S. national team over 20, 2019 were just sort of the same window repeated uh, over and over again. So, we, I mean, a lot of our takeaways were the same uh, from from month to month. Right. And then there hasn't been there hasn't been a ton of new development in sort of U.S. men's national team news over the last couple of weeks to to talk about. So here we are recapping the year in some ways rehashing what we have said already. So first of all, what what's the number one thing that went right in your opinion, Greg? Uh biggest positive of the year in my mind no brainer is uh Serginho Dest's choice to play for the United States. Yep. Totally. I totally agree. I think uh you know, a couple of close seconds in my in my opinion in terms of the of the development of players, but yeah, to have a right back like that uh play in Champions League minutes uh decide to play for the u.s and get cap tied big deal changes changes our player pool dramatically i think yeah that's that's the big celebration i would say number two is and this seems like a long time ago now but it did happen in 2019 tyler adams made a better transition from mls to the bundesliga than i think anyone perhaps a couple of people could be excluded from that <laughs> than anyone thought he would I'll go back, Bells. I will go back to our January 2019 uh, pre-Bundesliga recording. Uh, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure. Uh, I was I was adamant that Tyler Adams was actually going to transition a lot smoother than than people uh, were expecting. I was definitely more skeptical than you were. I, re- I remember that much. I don't remember exactly what you said, but we can we can reach into the archives <laughs> at some point and. Um, but you know, I mean, he did surprise a lot of people, maybe not you, but he surprised a lot of people by becoming pretty much an integral part of one of the top four teams in Germany. And he since has been injured and that's not good, but he showed that he can do it. And that's, that's, that's a pretty big deal to have a number six who can play at that level. And, and whether it was a big surprise or not, the fact of the matter is he was absolutely not a lock to do what he did. Uh, so to have it play out that way, uh, massive, massive for him, massive for sort of what it says about his his ability to play at the level and and massive for what we still expect he will bring to the United States national team. He's about two weeks out. Is that right? <laughs> two weeks from two weeks. <laughs> um, he is he is back in uh, supposedly back in training. He's a question mark to play before the end of the year, according to RB Leipzig's Twitter account. Number three, what's number three for you? Number three, which is probably a two A, uh, is Christian Pula six. Uh, newest, most recent meteoric rise uh, within the ranks at Chelsea. Yeah, so I, he exceeded my ex- expectations dramatically. Six goals, six assists, and a man of the match performance uh, midweek 
this past week against Lille in Champions League as Chelsea uh, advanced to the knockout rounds. He he does look he looks like a more confident, a more dangerous player than he did for Dortmund last year. Would you say that's fair? I I do, and and this I, I was definitely. Uh... Not I didn't see this one coming either. I, I kind of expected Pulisic to make sort of a lateral move soccer-wise where he'd go from sort of being a role player with Dortmund, uh, a contributing role player, but a role player nonetheless, to sort of a similar role at Chelsea uh, with a bigger paycheck. Uh, but it has not come out that way in the, in the first third of the season. No, he's not a role player. He's a he's a key player. He's not Eden, Eden Hazard, but... Uh, but maybe he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, he's got to do it for six more years to be right to be in right, that right. ballpark. But but I mean, like if you're just looking at his current performance, maybe he maybe he is currently doing that. Right. Maybe. I mean, the comparison's not ridiculous, I guess, at this point, whereas I think it was four months ago. All right. Number four. Number four for us. We don't even have these numbered. I'm just throwing numbers on the top on the front of them. <laughs> like a this, is, this is the fourth item. <laughs> right. Yeah, why don't you take the why don't you take the next one, Greg? All right. So the sort of fourth thing in our list of what went right uh, was the U twenty World Cup, and and for me the uh, the next sort of five months following, uh, maybe only Sergio Dest has fully sort of uh, completely made it, uh, if you want to say he's made it uh, by start being a starter at Ajax. Yeah, but. There are so many guys from that team that we were excited about going into the tournament. We might have actually come out with more names that we were really excited about than we went in with. Uh, and to a man, like almost none of them have have like completely fizzled out, which it wouldn't have shocked us if a lot of them had fizzled out. But uh, we can we can kind of run through real quick. I kind of have them listed sort of in order of who was most impressive in the tournament which you know you can you can quibble with that all you want but I won't uh, I won't quibble with it <laughs> but at the time I feel like this is who we were like whoa these guys we, we you know we had a lot of hope for these guys going in a lot of them showed really well at the tournament I'll start with Chris Richards uh, excellent world cup tournament and Pete, some people might be a little down on his progress since then uh, but the only way I feel like he could have progressed more is to actually be in the Bayern Munich lineup or in their 18 which is a really, really high bar to clear. Yeah, too so high. So the, the fact that he's not necessarily in that lineup doesn't mean that uh, that he's stalled or plateaued. Um, so for me, Chris Richards still in a very good place uh, after a very good U20 World Cup tournament. Yeah. And, that place being the three Bundesliga for Bayern's reserves. Right. And I'm, I feel like a broken record here, but I think the three Liga is a little bit underrated by your average American fan. The 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 crowds are hostile. The games are uh, very serious, and I think he's getting a ton of good reps. The only thing, you know, the only thing that you could maybe have asked from Richards was to be loaned out to a two Bundesliga club or something like that, which didn't hap- happen. So I guess you know there there may be some who would say, well, sure, he's not going to play for Bayern Munich, but maybe he could have gone and played for a better team than the third division in Germany. Right, and I mean, you could even say. You know, best case, he could have been loaned out to another Bundesliga team lower in the table. Uh, that that's definitely fair. So maybe, but but also there are guys from that reserve team that have been called up to Munich's first team uh, to play center back. So it's not like uh, it's not like Munich don't see those players as as guys they can draw on. Right, and they're I would, not just killing time in the three Bundesliga until they can be sold off necessarily. Right, Davies Davies split his time between the two the two sides for quite a while. And uh, 
and out fair in fairness, Richards is not splitting his time. He spends all his time with Byron too. And there, there are a couple others. There's that that French uh, midfielder whose name I can't remember at the moment, uh, Cuisant. And then uh, Xerxes made his debut in Champions League. He's a striker, kind of a messy striker, a messy striker for Bayern too. Anyway, there's like you said, there's several like that. And and I would say if Richards were totally dominating in three Liga, then it would, I guess I would feel a little worse about him being there. But he's 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 performing well. But he doesn't look like he's way above the level, and that's another thing that sort of speaks, I think, to the the strength of the league. He was he did look like he was above the level for the U twenties, maybe not above the level, but he was the best player for the U S. And he's playing in three league. It seems like it's a good challenge for him at the time at the moment. So there you go. Definitely not in a position where you're, where you're like, oh no, he's stalled. Like let's write him off. So Richards is in a good place. Uh, next guy on my list of U twenties is Tim Weah. Now Weah obviously has. Uh, run into a bit of an obstacle here with his hamstring injury at Lille. But the fact that following the tournament, he made a $10 million move from PSG to Lille, I think is a good thing. I think it shows that somebody rates him pretty highly. Uh, He was playing through their preseason, I believe, started their first uh, league match. Uh, Maybe Mm -hmm. came off the bench. In any event, uh, seemed to be in the plans. Was going to have his opportunity to play his way through, uh, set back by injury. His coach said uh, a week ago or so, he's going to be back after the winter break, and we expect his the second six months of the season to make up for the first six months, which in which he, of course he didn't play. So I think they he's still in the plans. Well, I mean, we'll we'll just have to see on that one. You know how I feel about players coming back from long injuries. Talk to me. Talk to me after their fourth. You're very, game. Yeah, you're very pessimistic. <laughs> Palm, uh, next one is Paxton Pomacall. Uh, I would say, you know, he he used the U20 World Cup as a real um, sort of momentum booster. And he was one of the better players in Major League Soccer, better Americans in Major League Soccer for for a big part of the summer. And then he was also slowed down by injury, had an adductor injury. And and I think that did affect his performance towards the end of the season. He, He came on late in that playoff game against Seattle for Dallas and almost helped them get a win over the eventual champions and played really well in that game. Um... And then he had surgery, and we expect. I mean, again, nothing to say that his his momentum is less than it was at the U twenty World Cup. It's probably it's probably greater. He signed a big contract, six hundred fifty thousand dollars a year with Dallas. Hopefully, that doesn't lock him into MLS for the next ten years. But uh, but it's a it's a big sign of that franchise's confidence in him. And uh, so here we go. Come on, Paxton. Uh, next guy, Alex Mendez, uh, had some real like real eye popping moments in the. Uh, in the World Cup, some like ridiculous sequences where he set guys up with 45 yard through balls uh, through a maze of defenders. Definitely caught a lot of people's eye, used potentially used that sort of uh, performance to key a move from Wolfsburg to I'm sorry, from Freiburg to Ajax. Uh, so, again, I would say that's a positive outcome following the World 20 World Cup. Uh, hasn't broken through for young Ajax too much a lot of a lot of appearances off the bench uh but young ix is basically like a reserve a powerhouse reserve team like there's such a log jam of talent uh throughout the so entire much talent. club so much talent. Uh, yeah. you know i kind of compare it to a guy we'll get to later which is richie ledesma uh ledesma at, at the beginning of the young psv season was behind a hatterin who was still playing for young psv right uh real talent for hatterin's dual national dutch something else right moroccan moroccan, moroccan yeah so uh anyway 
Ledesma behind a Hatteran, but because PSV isn't as strong top to bottom, a Hatteran makes the jump to PSV's first team, ends up starting for them, and that opens the door for Ledesma to become the starter at PSV. No such luck for Mendez at Young Ajax. They have like elite talents playing for their reserve team that might be starting in a lot of other uh, Eredivisie sides. So uh, Mendez a little bit behind in a bit of a traffic jam, so we don't know for sure sort of uh, what his quality is. He gets limited opportunities to showcase it. Uh, but he's not he's not off the radar entirely. I, I would say he's he's I'm still happier with where he is now compared to where he was at Freiburg twelve months ago. Yeah. Well twelve months ago he was still uh, officially a you know L A G two player. <laughs> lapsed L A G two player. So yeah, that's a ton of progress. And he's only been at Ajax for three months, four months now. Hasn't been that long. He does have his work cut out for him, but I, I think I think there's going to be plenty of room for patience there and, and to see him figure it out. Serginio Dest was the other, was the next name on the list from the U20. Did you have something else to say about Mendez? No, no, no. That's okay. but just, yeah, just Mendez in a, in a healthy spot for, for what he's trying to do. Absolutely. Dest, uh, we already discussed him, you know, his choice to play for the USA was huge, but you know, uh, seven months ago, he was a, he was a U20 player for the U S and he was a young Ajax player. So his, his, uh, progression has been meteoric and now he's a he doesn't start every game for Ajax but he he almost always comes off the bench if he doesn't start so and remember Serginho Dest was very good in the U20 World Cup but he was not necessarily our best player at the U20 World Cup which is again all sort of that building those reasons to be optimistic about this group right uh, one of the guys who I think emerged a lot higher than he went into that U20 World Cup was Chris Gloucester uh, he had a very good performance and then he parlayed that into a move to PSV, uh, from Hanover. Hanover's kind of a disaster club, so I'm glad he got out of there. <laughs> uh, we'll get and to that more later. He was, he, he transitioned pretty quickly into young PSV's lineup, uh, until I think he's been, had a bit of an injury setback over the last month or so. Right. I think he's coming. Well, did I see that he's coming back soon? I'm not sure, but he, he probably jumps right back into that, that lineup as soon as he gets healthy. His his teammate there is Richie Ledesma, who we've we've talked about a lot on this podcast. He he's the guaranteed number ten for young PSV. He hasn't made a debut for PSV's first team yet, but it doesn't feel too far away. I don't know what's the score in their game right now. Is it one one zero Dordrecht? I'm not sure. Uh, of note, young PSV who are bottom bottom four of the table in the. Erste Divisier. Uh, I was just checking this because Young Ajax is about to be finishing a promotion spot. They're not allowed to be promoted as a reserve team of a senior side. Uh, young right. PSV cl- close to a relegation spot. There actually is no relegation this year between the Erste Divisie and the Tweedy Divisies, the third division. <laughs> so is that what it is? I, I'm, I'm sure that's not right. how you pronounce it, but we'll take it. Uh, so, so young PSV are literally just sort of playing with house money. They can, they can throw any kid they want to in there for development and results be damned. Yeah. And it's a develop, it's a development team. They, they play, we said this last week, they play, uh, soccer, try to break through lines. They, they try to possess the ball. Um, Ledesma is roaming in the middle of the field, receiving the ball between the lines and trying to make stuff happen. He's getting a lot of, a lot of good reps at the stuff that he needs to get reps at. Seems like a healthy spot for him. Right. And, and remember, Desma 
barely featured in the U20 World Cup because he had just come back from uh, a long injury layoff, a long transfer layoff followed by a long injury layoff. Yeah, 12 months ago, we weren't even 100% sure he was going to PSV. I mean, that was the strong rumor, but it was it was never made official. He had, he had to pass a physical. He had a, a weird ankle injury that he had suffered a few months earlier. So here we are. He is, you know, right there behind the first team at PSV. That's progress, you know. 16 months ago he was a he was a lapsed RSL academy player. So eat it. <laughs> uh, uh, next guy Ulianes uh has he he again had l- like limited role in the U20 World Cup but every time he did come on the field uh the guy was dangerous. Like he had an incredible danger per 90 uh <laughs> ratio if you were to if you were to ma- uh, extrapolate it out. So uh Ulianes has turn that into a uh incredible tear through the u19 bundesliga mm-hmm. and time will tell if that parlays into a call up to the senior team over the winter break yeah with all f- with the last three gloucester ledesma and, and uli i think the big the big question is are they going to be in winter training with the first team and what's going to happen there i think that's kind of a, a crucial moment for all three of them Gloucester himself mentioned that in a recent interview with uh, with some British uh, podcast, I think. Next up, Brandon Cervania. He, he did you did you think he raised his stock in the U twenty World Cup, at least in your eyes? Uh, so not necessarily. No, like I didn't think he was uh, uh, like a incredible performer in the U twenty World Cup. Uh, but it's sort of what he's done since then. I mean, he he started in the game against France, so he was he was a big part of the win against France. Uh, there were questions during the World Cup about the fact that he was starting over his FC Dallas teammate, uh, Edwin Cerillo, who was at that right. point ahead of him in the club depth chart. Um, but since the U-20 World Cup, Cervania has jumped ahead of Cerillo uh, and became more of a factor for FC Dallas. Right. And, um, yeah, I think he played well down the stretch. I'm not quite as impressed with him as as some other people are, like Matt Doyle or, I mean, who else is really impressed with Cervania besides Doyle? Uh, I'm not sure who else was fully aboard the Cervania hype train, but uh, but in any event, we've got that's that's nine guys we just listed, uh, who even though some of them it might feel like they have they're they're sort of stalling out because they haven't broken through to a first team, I feel like any of those guys wouldn't be out of place in a lot of MLS starting 11s, which is. Uh, sort of my go-to at this point for whether or not uh, their level of play is good enough for the national team. Right. Uh, and, and yeah, any, any one of those guys I think could, could be, could jump into a MLS roster, probably an MLS 11. Now the last name on here is Sebastian Soto. He's the one who you could argue has stalled, right? Yeah. And he actually had a, a really impressive tournament for the U twenties. It was, it was kind of one where he may have actually, uh, the quality of his tournament may have played into the fact that he's stalling right now. If he's one where we think maybe he overplayed his hand trying to negotiate a contract, uh, using his U 20 world cup as leverage. Uh, and, and yeah. Hanover might be sort of, uh, making an example of him. That's just speculation. It's also possible that he just has can't compete at the two Bundesliga level. Yeah. Hanover not doing too well in that league either. And, uh, and he's not getting any minutes. Who knows? Who knows? Well, he, I, we assume he'll move after his contract is up, and I'm not exactly sure when that is, but it's, I don't think it's too far out, and he'll get, he'll get another run at things. Um, on top of that, what else do we have here? Well, we've got, we've got one Giovanni Reina, 
who in the last two weeks has dressed for the Dortmund first team for a Bundesliga game uh, and then lit up a UEFA Youth Champions League match. So uh, a pretty good 10 days for Gio Reyna. Yeah, two goals, two assists, and a win for the BVB U19s. He's uh, he seems very clearly to be you know if not the next young young player to break through the next one or two or three, and um, yeah, sky's the limit. Very talented player. Next up is Miles Robinson, who sort of came out of nowhere in 2019. He was I don't know if he even played for Atlanta United two did he in 2018, but he wasn't playing for Atlanta United one, and then he became a, a guaranteed starter for them. Started all season. Michael Parkhurst said he's the best 1v1 defender he's ever seen. And uh and then he got his first call up. So that's a that's a good solid young center back prospect who also has been capped and looked pretty good for the national team already that we weren't even really thinking about 12 months ago. Yep, yep. Uh, sort of in the same boat, a little older Jackson Ewell. Uh I th- I think people might be jumping the gun a little bit when they're talking about Jackson Ewell being uh the num- the new number 1 number 6 on the depth chart. Um, and, and I don't mean that because it's, he, maybe he has passed Michael Bradley or he's in the same sort of discussion as Michael Bradley. I just think it's kind of crazy that we're even trying to reach really firm conclusions at this point with so much turnover and so much sort of unknown uncertainty about these players. Uh, what you has four caps, five caps at this point, mm-hmm. but he's, uh, but you know, that's a couple lot. of them against Cuba. Right. It goes a long way for me that he brought, uh, brought stability to that midfield against Canada. Obviously he didn't do that single handedly. There were some tactical decisions that helped, which we will talk about, but, uh, that, that was a must win game and he stepped in and helped us get the, the win that we needed. So yeah, that, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm excited that, the, that he's been brought into the fold and that he's been holding his own the way he has. Uh, I think it just, again, showcases sort of how much fuzziness there is about our current player pool, even after uh, a year of Greg Berhalter. Yeah. Well, he he's had a Yule has had a, a really good year. He uh, he he kind of learned how to play defense from Matias Almeida, and uh, he's translated that into uh, at least being you know in the top thirty of the national team. And probably you know if if Berhalter had to take a a squad of twenty three to the World Cup tomorrow, I would think Yule would be on that squad. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, three other guys who would be on that squad who. Uh, maybe we weren't sure we're going to be in this list uh, January this year. Jordan Morris, Aaron Long, Reggie Cannon, sort of, sort of a little bit more established than these guys who are or true sort of youth prospects at the moment. Uh, but none of them sure things ten months ago, twelve months ago. Yeah, twelve twelve months ago, even seven months ago, I was really down on Jordan Morris, and I you know I'm still skeptical of him, but he he obviously delivers, and he's obviously. Uh, dangerous enough to be in the in the twenty three right now, and probably in the eleven at least until Tim Weah gets healthy. Long, you know, Long probably the most established of the three at this point last year, but he I think he separated himself as this as the center back partner for John Brooks. We discussed that last week. Reggie Cannon uh, had a kind of an up and down first six months of the year. You know, he was he didn't understand the system when he was called into January camp, and I think he got sent home early. And then he he was sort of a last second addition to the Gold Cup roster. Berhalter sort of did away with the um, inverted right back system at the Gold Cup, and Cannon emerged as the sort of top right back in that camp and played really well. 
and he's played really well every chance he's gotten since. Yeah, he's looked good for the National League the whole time. Just so you don't get fact-checked too hard, Bells, uh, Cannon wasn't sent home early in January. He just didn't play a minute. Sat okay. on the bench for both friendlies while uh, Nick Lima held held the entire uh, right-back responsibility. Okay. Yeah, isn't that weird? That's so weird. That we... <laughs> uh, but for both Morris and Long, at least, I'd say what we're, we're kind of seeing, I think, is uh, you know, I think they deserve their current place in the in the discussion where people are high on Morris, high on Long, and I'm high on them in the sense that uh, I think they both sort of have low ceilings but high floors. Is that is that okay to say? I think so. Yeah, and and I think that's still a good thing. Like if we can get uh, a bunch more. Uh, bunch more Aaron Longs and Jordan Morris's to at least have to call on for depth, uh, then I think we're we're doing well as sort of some of these other lottery tickets. Uh, we wait to see if any of them hit full jackpots. Right. Right, right. We'll take these $100,000 lottery tic- ticket wins with Morris and Long uh, and, and just wait for the big one to hit. Yep. Powerball. Um <laughs> The next name on the list of sort of, you know, also good developments in the play, player pool, uh, Dwayne Holmes, who uh, 12 months ago was just breaking into that Derby County team. He had been a, playing in League One for a while, and he's become a he's become a fixture in that lineup. They're a good, solid championship side, and he's an option for Burhalter in the midfield. No indications that Burhalter will exercise that option, but he's there. Yeah, you wonder if Holmes will be the the sort of Eric Lehigh from the Jurgen Klinsmann era, area where he seemed like he would solve a lot of problems for us, never really given a run out. Mm. I have a small category here of things that went reasonably well. Uh, the first one is is just way as $10 million move and then his injury. So it's, it's great. The move was great and the injury was not great. Um, the second one is I think the one we'll probably talk about the most. Uh, Berhalter who we have criticized all year pretty much for uh, for a variety of things for a variety of things <laughs> at long last at the end of the year in the last international window he did show some tactical flexibility and he did two things he changed the defensive shape that we played with against Canada and i don't know if it was instructions or or if it was a result of the def- defensive shape but it gave us the freedom to score goals in transition or create danger in transition and now's the point in the podcast where I'm going to turn it over to you and let you talk for <laughs> as long as you'd like. Uh, so it's 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 one of those things where he gets the credit for for making the change, uh, but you still have to almost hold it against him that it took him 17 games to do it. Uh, you know, we we sort of moaned a lot about his player selection uh, and the fact that you know even Burhalter would complain sometimes. I remember halftime of games, maybe maybe even as early as March, January. Uh, where he was saying the guys needed to be braver and go and going forward, and it's like, guy, you're you're picking all these safe players and putting them in your eleven. So uh, and then you putting know, them in a soft four four two block. Yeah, right. So so what do you what do you think is going to be the outcome here? Uh, so finally against Canada, he starts a Sebastian Legette, who's a player who wants to drive the game forward. Uh, lo and behold, uh, within forty seconds, Legette in a transition moment hits a great ball to drive the game forward. Uh, you know, and we're and we create danger. So um, it's it's one of those things where it's like, okay, it's good. It's it's worrying that it took him this long. Uh, but if if this is what we can start to count on seeing regularly, uh, then then we're in a better place than we were for all of 2019, to be honest. Right. Yeah. That, that's that simple. Like that simple of a switch, and we're in a much better place. Right. 
That's why I put it in the went reasonably well category because it <laughs> you had to have the the first 17 games to even create the problem, but the problem did to some extent get solved at least for one night. It one was, night only. <laughs> well, yeah, right. TBD. All right. Uh, another another positive in that in that evening game against in the Orlando game against Canada, John Brooks's return. So Brooks had played one game in March, I believe, for Berhalter, then sat out everything else with the injury. Uh, made his return against Canada, presumably will be available going forward. Um, adds a nice touch of class to our back line. Anything else go reasonably well in your opinion before we move to uh, what went wrong? Uh, I'm sure there. I'm sure there's some minor, reasonably good things that happened, but let's uh, let's skip to the bads. Okay. So, I mean, the the thing that Berhalter is probably going to be criticized about the most, aside from his brother. The fact that he's brothers with Jay Berhalter. The thing that he's probably criticized for the most is that he didn't deliver on this promised possession-based style. It never, it never really, it never really worked. It never really clicked. Is that fair? That's, I, I'm going to say that yes, and I know there are people who will disagree and say no. We saw it against some of the, uh, you know, some of the really weak Concacaf teams. But to be honest, like I, I still don't think we saw it against those teams in any way. In a way that I would say yes, this is clicking. Like they they might point to what would you point to bells if you were going to say no it did work like we did get to see it against weak team teams you'd point to the first few minutes against Jamaica before the power outage and I guess you might point to uh, the second half against Trinidad yeah I, th- I think you're you're about it right there and and uh, maybe you'd look at the Gold Cup and and sort of show uh, the f- I don't know maybe four or five clips of. Uh, it's like that diagonal ball that either Bradley or McKenney would hit across the box uh, where an mm-hmm. outside back would then head it back across for a forward to finish. And we scored like two or three goals on it. And everyone's like, that's it. That right there, like that shows that we're making progress. Now we just need to be able to do it against uh, the good teams. And I kind of am not, I'm just, I'm basically just not buying that. I feel like it's almost like a little bit of a gimmick. Like uh, if you just ask your team to look for that over and over and over again and overload a, a poor opponent, like you had better be able to find that three or four times over the course of a six game tournament against against the competition that's as weak as it is. You know what I mean? Like if right. if it's like what we did against Cuba, the um you know, we scored all like seven goals in ten minutes or something crazy like that. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, hitting hitting those going up the wing and then and then crossing it for a late arriving West McKinney. And I remember people saying, well, we're, we're getting the patterns of play down. That's good for the players to get those patterns down so that they, they get comfortable with them. And then we went went up to Toronto and played Canada and looked like we had lost the song sheet, you know? <laughs> right. And that, that's exactly what I'm saying. So if, if what you're asking, what you think you're building on in those games uh, can't materialize at all against Canada, it's not like we were just like, oh, we were there. We were just, we just couldn't find that last opening, uh, in, or in in Toronto, like we weren't even close, like we weren't even we weren't even playing a recognizable game. So uh, that's where that's where I like I really push back against people who are like we saw we saw the the foundations of it. Like if you want to argue that, I'd say we saw those exact same foundations in the January games. Like he he sh- we saw some things against Costa Rica and Panama in those games where you know. When we were evaluating at the time, we were able to project with some optimism like, OK, this is the foundation. And now we're going to be able to build on this for the next the next game and the next game. Right. We'll add better players. Uh, but 12 months later, like then you, you look at that Toronto game or you even look at 
you know, through the gold cup and any of the friendlies, there wasn't really anything built on that foundation. It looks exactly the same as it looked in January. Like some guys have some idea of what the pattern is, but there's no more fluidity to it. There's no more, uh, it's not as, it's not well drilled. So in effect, like it's not a foundation. It's what any coach could have, could accomplish with one camp. So in that's, that's where I think of it as sort of being a waste. Yeah. Yeah. I can't disagree with that. I think you said it well after the Canada game, you, the, the, it was good that we, that we scored goals in transition, that we, we troubled Canada when they were in possession, but it was the, the things that we did look like the kind of things a, a coach could have done in his first game out, you know, isn't that so, what you said it? Isn't that yeah, what you said? That, that's right. It, it looked like a very good first game for a coach. So, uh, the patterns that we were trying, like we did try to, you know, run some of those patterns out of the back. Uh, and they basically just never came off. Maybe one or two came off. Um, and that's sort of what you'd expect if you just introduce them to some players and like, okay, try to do these things. And it's not always going to be clean, but you know, we got to start somewhere and it's like, all right, well, we got to start somewhere 12 months later. Right. So here we are kind of starting over Burhalter's starting over. I, I know he wouldn't say it that way and nobody at us soccer would, but it does feel like it's just, he's just getting like a, a second chance to start again. Start over. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it feels like. And, you know, maybe he, I mean, there's an optimistic way to look at it. Maybe he learned a lot that first year. I'm sure he did. And, um, he can implement all that and, and be a lot more pragmatic and figure out what, what we're going to do and be more effective. Um, so that's kind of how I, that's kind of how I look at it. I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not saying Burhalter out at this point, partly because there's just no point in saying it. <laughs> um, and I think he'll, I am optimistic that he will do better in 2020 than he will in 2019. In part because you think he's going to stick with the uh, with a, a more aggressive defensive posture. Do you, is that a big part of it? That's a big part of it. I think the I think having having Dest uh, regularly there and uh, you know somebody we didn't talk about in our went reasonably well category is probably should have is Josh Sargent. Um, you know, Sargent hopefully getting healthy and getting some reps. You know, having getting Josie Altidore back, hopefully, uh, getting Tyler Adams back. I think the the team just looks a lot better automatically um, with Adams. So, yeah, there's definitely that hope that the player pool will upgrade itself. I mean, and, and that is a very real possibility. Uh, there, there are some questions I think that Burhalter has planted about how ready, he, how readily he will he will respond to an upgraded player pool. Mm, yeah. You mean because he talks about the group so much? Because he talks about the group so much and because of what it seems like it takes to sort of force his hand. You essentially have to force his hand at this point if you want to break into the group. And that means, it appears to mean, uh, playing regularly for a top five club slash world power Ajax. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll find out even more about that because the, we discussed this last week as well. Because the optimistic case there is he spent 2019 establishing the group, establishing the culture of the group, and hopefully that's whatever he wants that to be is set now, and he can he can remove pieces and install pieces with a little more more freedom since he has this baseline culture that he's looking for. Yeah, that's that's definitely the hope. But that was also again that was the exact same uh, argument that we made in the in March when he left a lot of good European players off of his roster in favor of the January guys. 
uh, we're like, all right, he's just setting this up so that the gold cup he can he can call in all of his all of the other horses, and very few of the other horses were really given a chance. Yeah, well, it looks so, like it looks like Holmes is not Holmes one of the horses, not one of the horses, and that's <laughs> that's likely not to change. Uh, Adams is Adams is one of the horses, and then you know if you gotta imagine if Reina breaks in at BVB BVB and Ledesma breaks in at PSV, they are gonna be horses as well. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. We could end up with a, we could end up with an, an entire team, of course. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, again, that's the hope, but, uh, but you know, it's I hope. guess time it's, yeah, that's what I mean. At this point, it is sort of a very much a faith situation. We've had a lot of hopes this year. <laughs> well, yeah. So that, that's the other, I guess we've already sort of covered it, but that's the other thing that went wrong is the constraint of the player pool by Burhalter. And, um, there's another name that you're really, um, interested in bringing up, I think. <laughs> so on the things that went wrong was the, uh, was the Burhalter Nagby divide. Yeah. After Nagby had a, he, I mean, there was a Nagby Klinsman divide. Uh, and so when Klinsman was he, released, he must just be impossible to get along with. <laughs> It's funny, like my my interpretation of it is very much just like pro. I'm always almost always pro player, uh, so I'm always just like, oh, I mean, Nagby just has a really good work life balance, and if it's not a situation that he really really wants to be a part of, you know, he's going to choose to spend that time with his family and not not that, wade into the. That's totally what it seems like, honestly. And I have a lot of respect for players who make those calls. So uh, you know, same thing when Donovan made his. Uh, choices for his own personal health and well-being. I'm like, hey, that's great, buddy. Like, that's exactly what you should do, uh, and we'll welcome you back when you're ready to come back. So, uh, which we did not. <laughs> apparently not. We did when it was suited us. He came back for the Gold Cup, uh, and then was the best player in that, and then was promptly cut 11 months later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, Nagby. So uh, you know, Nagby came back and played for Arena, and I don't know what the situation was there, but he seemed to have no problem uh, accepting those call-ups. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's really kind of, I'm really curious about what, what sort of went on with, uh, us soccer and Nagby between, between her, uh, arena and Berhalter. Yeah. I, I mean, there's, these things are, these are human beings we're talking about and there's, there's personal stuff involved almost certainly. Right. And, uh, and we don't know what it is, but it's not hard to imagine that they're, they're, they might just not get along Nagby and Berhalter or maybe Holmes and Berhalter don't get along. You know, it could be, it could be that simple. And oh, I guess we just have to sort of not know and live with it. But, but Nagby, Nagby comes up for me as something that went wrong because I genuinely think he would help the player pool. Uh, I think he would help the team accomplish sort of what it's trying to accomplish under Berhalter. Uh, and I just really enjoy watching him play. Fair enough. Fair enough. There were some injuries that, that went wrong in 2019. We've discussed them glancingly already, but the big one was Tyler Adams, uh, Tim Weah, his hamstring that kept him out all fall was a big disappointment. Pomacall being slowed down by an adductor injury towards the end of yeah, the Yeah, that, that Pomacall one hit right after the, basically right after the U20 World Cup, so it became difficult to take his momentum from that tournament and the early half of the MLS season and actually see what he could do for the national team. I'm, I'm, we're kind of assuming that that's why he wasn't able to get a bigger uh, cameo in, in the one call-up he got. Yeah. I think it's a pretty safe assumption at this point. And then um, Jonathan Amon, he's just hasn't been healthy all year, right? That's that's what we're assuming there too. We don't actually have any injury confirmation, I don't think. He's just sort of completely vanished from FC Norseland's, uh 
team. So he, he's a guy we, this podcast was pretty high on. Uh, wasn't in the U20 World Cup uh, plans. Speculation there amongst me, at least, was that Norseland is just kind of like not great about releasing him. <laughs> so they're worried he's going to get hurt again, which seems to be a justified worry. I think I if read that's, that somewhere. Yeah, if he's hurt now. So that's why he was called up to the Gold Cup pre-camp because he got released him for the senior team, then cut from the Gold Cup roster. Uh, and then I don't think has really played since then. I think he made a couple brief appearances at the beginning of the Danish season, season which starts kind of early, you know, compared to... Okay. But yeah, he hasn't been he hasn't been playing for a while. So, so yeah, so it's just a, a complete void of information for Jonathan Amon. It just it just on there because we were high on him and he plays a position of need. He's a dangerous winger. He can he can beat people. He's a pretty good passer. So we'll we'll always have that Bolivia game. <laughs> yeah. Was it Bolivia? Was it Peru? I don't remember who it was. Against it was Peru. It was so Peru. Long. He played well. Oh, uh, the Peru game. Yeah, we got so much data from that Peru game. So, you know, big picture. What's your big picture takeaway from 2019? Uh, and then let's so, get out of here. All right. I kind of circle all the way back to, you know, what we were talking about when we started this podcast, which was sort of that uh, savior committee. And we were talking about a bunch of different names. And I feel like mm-hmm. uh, 2019 saw a lot of new names added to that list. And it saw a lot of the guys at the top of that list uh, almost take their game even higher. Uh, in the Adams and Pulisic and, and I'd even say Weston McKinney, uh situation where McKenney wasn't you know necessarily locked into being a starter, which he is now. Um, yeah. So you have all that optimism. You have the optimism of what the U twenty, the last summer's U twenties are doing. Uh, so I guess what I'd say is I'm still very optimistic about the future of the program, uh, and I feel like we do have sort of an unprecedented influx of talent on the way. Uh, very little of the optimism at this point is tied to uh, the staff, the, you know, Greg Berhalter or you, what us soccer is doing in general. Yeah, I don't. And I, I guess I would, I would just add to that. I don't see Berhalter like he's not going to hurt that momentum. I, I mean, maybe he will, but I, I don't, I'm not saying he will. I just, I'm just sort of neutral on it. But, um, do you think he'd actually, he's actually gonna like hurt the, the, larger positive this larger positive momentum about the player pool you think that's going to be held back by Burhalter? uh i do think Burhalter is going to be slower to integrate some of these players than than maybe other coaches would be i do feel like there are probably coaches out there who would have already made a lot of uh moves to get some of the younger kids involved uh and you know Burhalter has decided that's not the direction he wants to go uh doesn't necessarily mean he's wrong and that people who think that the kids should be playing more are right uh, but I'm definitely more on the kids should be playing more side. Yeah. Well, so just to, just to back up your point about this, you know, this is, this was sort of the animating reason for the podcast in the first place. Uh, you and I were both excited about the future of the player pool. Um, is that fair to say that was that well, the animating at, reason for at, the, the, also we the, wanted something to do with all this time we were spending, <laughs> Uh, at the very beginning of it, you were very excited about the uh, young players in the player pool, and I was actually pretty cynical about it. <laughs> mm, that's true. Uh, and it wasn't that you convinced me. It was that so many of the young players hit hit on levels that, you know, the past generations of hyped up players weren't hitting on. Right. And to give to give some just some quantification of this, uh, 
you know, the I, I tweeted about this a few days ago. The the top twenty USMNT valuations according to Transfer Market, a third party, a third party uh, objective source uh, based on uh, the estimations of German contributors, you know, regular people. So the wisdom of the crowd in Germany, which has been uh, pretty accurate over the years. Uh, it has, it actually has, it's done, right. it's done I, remarkably I well. Historically. And I was just going to say, let's, let's not go that far. No, has it not been accurate historically? I just, I just mean the wisdom. I'm just going to, I'm actually oh. just going to tie this up and leave it and not, not go. <laughs> no, no, it's the wisdom of the crowd. The wisdom of crowds doesn't mean that people always elect the right people, but it does mean that if you have a, a giant cow at a, uh, at a state fair, and you ask everybody, you ask everybody to estimate the weight of the cow. If you get enough people to put in their estimations, you will get, that's as close as you can get to estimating something. If you average all those estimations, this is like, this is the, this is a thing, Greg. It's a thing. No, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing yeah. with you. I'm just, I just want to make sure that we're talking about transfer market and the, uh, <laughs> the values of soccer players. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, so transfer market says uh, six of our top ten players um, and eight of our top twenty by value are twenty-one and under. But let's focus on the six of our top ten. Um, they are. Let's see. Who are they? I bet Christian Pulisic is on there. <laughs> yeah, Pulisic, McKenny, Adams, Wea, Sargent, Dest, Cannon, and Mihailovic are the eight. So it, it's Pulisic, McKenny, Adams, Wea, Sargent, and Dest as the six who are in the top 10. Now, um, in 2002, we had two players 21 and under in the top 20, Beasley and Donovan. In 2006, we had one, Freddie Adu. In 2010, we had three, Bradley Altidore and Francisco Torres. And these values were much, I'm not going to look up all the numbers and recite them to you, but these values were much lower uh, uh, outside of Altidore, I think, than... um, Alzador and Bradley, then the numbers of you know Pulisic, McKenney, Adams, Wea, Sargent, and Des. And then in 2014, we had one player in our top 20 who was uh, 21 and under. That was John Brooks. And in 2018, we had two in Pulisic and Miazga. So that Pulisic and Miazga has has turned into all of a sudden. There's five new names in the top 10 for valuation. And I think you know it's there are quite a few others who, as soon as they as soon as they make some debuts and start to score some goals, I'm thinking of Reyna Ledesma. Then they're gonna they're gonna join that group too. But even if they don't, even if it's just this six, that's a totally unprecedented, uh, a totally un- unprecedented state of affairs. And I think I think people don't give that that enough credit. Right. They don't there. I feel like the pendulum swung so far to the, to being cautious and being like, Oh, we've been burned so many times that it's like there people aren't necessarily appreciating what they're seeing. Uh, you know, with, with just, I mean, just Pulisic, McKenney and Adams is like an out, out absurd trio of U 21 players in the U S historical, uh, framework. So yeah. to have those three plus all this sort of gravy underneath them with Serginio Dest now choosing you, like it's, this is sort of an insane moment to be to be watching unfold, and and a lot of it happened. I mean, McKenney and Pulisic were um, were top twenty players for the U.S. by value in twenty eighteen as well. But the other the other four they all they all joined in twenty nineteen, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So so, so again, it kind of goes back to my uh, <laughs> like my Bayesian and like it's this. We should probably expect more of these things to happen. 
uh, over the next over the next 18 months. We should be expecting more guys to sort of hit on the levels close to these guys, not necessarily Pulisic level if he's the outlier, but you know at the McKenney level, at the Tim Weah level. So that's going to put us in a completely new spot as far as our national team program. And and the question then becomes. All right, but how quickly does it happen? How quickly do we integrate them? And how quickly do we get them playing well together? And a lot of that is Greg Berhalter related. Yeah, it would be great to have a... um, I would love to hear Greg Berhalter talk about this. Are they looking at these numbers? Are they thinking about this as like sort of a sea change? I never get that sense. The, The one time I think we did was when... I think he was being asked directly about, you know, the decision to try to play this possession game and, and is that the best for the U.S.? Uh, and I think he made a point of saying, like, with all respect to the 2010 or 2002 team that he played on in 2002, like, they didn't have Christian Pulisic on that team. Like, Christian Pulisic is a is at a different level than sort of any other U.S. player has been on. And I don't think he was saying because of Christian Pulisic we can do this. I think he was using Christian Pulisic as sort of the poster boy, mm-hmm. but to say – no, this is a different group. This is, we have a different player pool than what we've had uh, for previous cycles. Okay. So, so I think he's. I think he kind of has someone yeah. acknowledged it. I had and forgotten sure that he said that, but you're totally right. He did say that, and it was. Uh, it was like before he ever coached a game, too. I think it was like his right. first. Right. So I, I think he's. I think he's just as eager as the rest of us to see these kids break through. He's just not going to be as. Uh, he's going to be a little bit more risk averse than maybe some others would be in actually calling him up, integrating him. Okay. We've and been... they're not all going to hit. Obviously we, we've said this before. They're not all going to, even the guys we've listed out now, uh, some of them are going to fizzle, which is, which is fine. We just, right. we just need a couple to come good and a couple to come out of nowhere. Lottery tickets. It's a cynical <laughs> lottery ticket play. So yeah, several disappointments on the coaching and player selection front, but the player pool is moving in the right direction. That's the that's the optimism that we uh, have been bringing to you from the beginning. We have been accused of being too pessimistic, but it's partly because we just we're just so excited about the future. I think. Um, now speaking of the future, 2020, 2019 has is kind of ending with a whimper. There's not that much to talk about. Uh, with all due respect to the Player of the Year award, um, uh, but 2020 is going to be. Uh, a lot there's gonna be a lot so there's a camp is there gonna be a u23 camp in january too there's definitely uh, a I, u20 I, camp in a national it, i guess i would say it would be ridiculous even for u.s soccer not to have a u23 camp so i'm just going to assume that there will be there's going to be a u20 camp i believe in florida mm-hmm. uh our understanding is that the senior team will be convening in cutter right right to prepare for the world cup in 2022 a logistics dry run i assume <laughs> That's. I mean, I really do think that's what it is, right? Just uh, for the for the sort of admin coaching staff side to get the lay of the land. I mean, I guess that makes sense. I never really thought of that. Okay, and then in March there's going to be a U23 camp, not a U23 camp. There's going to be qualifying, Olympic qualifying, Olympic qualifying in Guadalajara. Yeah, and I. So that's a big deal. If we can, if we can be one of the two teams that qualifies from Concacaf, we get to play in the Summer Olympics, which will be obviously in the summer. And then uh, the U20s will be meeting in March as well and getting ready for U20 World Cup qualifying, which is in June, probably in Florida if passed as any precedent. And then um, the the senior team will play a couple friendlies in Europe, one of which will be against the Netherlands, which was announced earlier today by the Netherlands. And uh, And then 
in June, of course, it'll be U20 World Cup qualifying. Let me know if I'm missing anything here. And then it's, it's a lot of stuff. Nations League, CONCACAF Nations League uh, Final Four will be in June as well. The U.S. is in that thanks to our win over Canada. Most and, likely hosted in the U.S., I believe, all, all every game. Mm. That's that's the rumor I've been seeing. I don't think that's confirmed. So I'm, I don't need a second source. I can just say these things. <laughs> okay. So that's definitely going to be in uh, in Columbus, Ohio, and <laughs> Cleveland, and Louisville, Kentucky, and then um, just outside of Indianapolis. So <laughs> they'll stage the game at a Hampton Inn, just outside of Indianapolis, Indiana. Everybody can head over to LA Fitness to get re- ready for the <laughs> get ready for the game, and then the um, the Olympics, of course, in late twenty twenty, late summer twenty twenty, and then World Cup qualifying begins. First, the first match will be in the September window. First two matches, so just a huge amount of soccer coming up in 2020, which is why you and I might be taking a break until the end of the year, just to kind of recharge and uh, reset our priorities. And for as much as like uh, U.S., I, I'm going to say this sort of affectionately because I'm part of the. I think I'm. I'd be lumped in with U.S. Soccer Twitter that like gets apoplectic about some of these U.S. Soccer decisions. Uh, if you thought that you know, U S soccer Twitter was losing its mind over results in 2019. Imagine if things don't go smoothly in 2020. I, 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 yeah. And it'll be, I mean, it'll be much more justified. I get, I think soccer Twitter does get a little overly critical of like stupid things. Like who, who announces the friendly first, the Netherlands or the U S I saw some (laughs) tweets about that. Like, come on guys, come on guys. Who cares? (laughs) Right. Like let's keep our, let's keep our focus on what matters. But, whether or not whether or not Ledesma is getting phone calls from Greg Berhalter. Ah, <laughs> uh, way to way to turn the knife, <laughs> twist the knife. All right. Well, uh, happy holidays to everyone, and happy holidays to you, Greg. Hope everybody has a good New Year. Anything else we need to talk about? No, no, no. Happy. Uh, honestly, everyone enjoy your holiday. Enjoy the uh, time off from the well from the national team, but obviously club soccer going nuts for the holidays. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see ya.